0: On Sex Positive Me, we explore all aspects of sex and relationships, ranging from fetishes and BDSM to ethical non monogamy and LGBTQ issues. Sex Positive Me destigmatizes sexual practices and relationships while reconciling reality with myth and misconceptions. Our goal is to educate, entertain, and be advocates of sexual freedom. And now, here's your hosts, Angelique and John Luna.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to February, Valentine's Day, Love Month, and all the fun things that makes romance romantic, I guess. But that would be under John C. Luna. He's the romantic. I'm the skeptic when it comes to love.
2: Well, it depends. Sometimes you lo- you do like the woo-woo, and I'm the skeptic on that one.
1: Well, that's true.
2: You are the one who meditates more and tells me I need to meditate more. Yes, you do. But then got to hit the science, and my heart rate's nice and low at around 65. And yours hovers at about 101 when you're just nice and calm. So, <sighs> but it's funny. No, that's a really good segue because we're going to be talking actual science on this one.
1: Science. I know. And it's not sci-fi this time.
2: No, it's, it, it's real science. Yes, we do that real science thing. So, we have a guest on the show. Her name is Dr. David, uh, uh, sorry, Star Wars jump here. Dr. Nicole Prousey, PhD and a sexual psychotherapist. Welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me on. Sounds like fun already. Can't wait.
2: The jokes will just keep on rolling, but (laughs) no, I'm going through your bio. Impressed is not the word on so many levels. Neuroscientist, uh, data scientist specializing in addictions. I saw Harvard on there.
1: Statistics. Uh, I'm like, oh god, this is way beyond my
0: pay grade.
2: <laughs> and got to work for the World Health Organization. I'm already a fan.
0: <laughs> yeah, I loved. I got uh, just the first time last summer. Um, well, I guess it's actually January. I was out uh, actually in Africa working on a sexual health um, item, like trying to develop a survey that actually captured not only the negatives around sexuality, but also some of the positives, you know, which we often forget to even ask about. Uh, And that measure of uh, that's hopefully going to be used internationally just came out in a publication like two weeks ago also uh, from that time with the who. So I'm excited. This stuff is all kind of coming to fruition at once, but I loved working over there because it really pushes you to think, you know, what kind of stuff are we concerned about here? Like, is this really <laughs> you know, what, what's reasonable to be worried about? And how much do they care about orgasms in Malaysia? And uh, it's a cool perspective.
2: It's always interesting to see because it's, it's very cultural. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the practice of how women are treated and sex is treated. And from country to country and, and culture to culture, it can be, it can be so different. Um, and it's also a power struggle in, in a lot of places.
0: That's what struck me is there was a lot of focus while I was there on not only motherhood, but whether or not you have the choice of motherhood. And I was like, Whoa, how many places are worried about this? You know, and like, you know, it's a concern in some places, but the way that it was being discussed, it kind of drove home. Like we are privileged you know, to have concerns about orgasm gap and, uh, you know, some of the things that we write and think about in the U.S., um, I think other places, it's not on the radar because they've got way bigger fish to fry, you know, kind of getting the right to even choose if they want to be pregnant or not. And um, it helps keep things in perspective with the kind of things that we study and worry about sometimes, for sure.
2: Now, when you say a choice to be pregnant or not, it, it was <laughs> almost, I'm sure, it, was it almost seen as like their duty to procreate?
0: That seemed in some countries where they have really limited access to birth control or the uh, religious doctrine, um, limited access uh, either to birth control or to condom access. So the ability to protect oneself either from pregnancy or uh, sexually transmitted infections, Uh, the nature of like when you're allowed to wed, uh, who has dominion over that. And you just start realizing like this is you know, a much uh, different level of problem, even though, like, I knew that they existed. I You know, I read about that in our journals, but just in English journals, we miss a lot of those concerns, you know, that uh, trouble a lot of the world. You know, we just don't have those kind of, um, we have those problems in North America, but at a much different scale than some places we're dealing with. So uh, I really appreciated that for just helping ground, you know, it's hard to be a, it sounds like a bit of a downer to start off with, but... You know, it's also like, how lucky are we that most of those things, you know, we have uh, at least most folks have some access to health care that is reasonable. They're supposed to give us access to birth control. They're supposed to, you know. Um, so we have a lot of advantages here, you know, and access to things that aren't assumed other places. And I'm grateful for that.
2: Couldn't agree with you more. The U.S., we we don't realize what we have here.
1: Oh, come on. We're overprivileged and overindulged and, you know, a lot of other countries. See, because I grew up going to Mexico for 15 years every holiday. So that was our vacation time. So I got to see how other countries really see us, like Mexico to the United States. Even though we're connected, they always often... Just, called me out as spoiled little princess, you're so privileged, you don't know what you have. And I'm like, whoa, 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 excuse me. I I live in a different country, but I did acknowledge the different lifestyles and what privileges I do have versus what they have, especially when it came to poverty, medical access. Um, My grandparents, even in the 1980s going into the 90s, lived up in the mountain, no electricity, no running water. I thought I was stuck in 1900. I was like, I need a toilet. My cousin pointed to a cactus plant. They're like, there you go. I'm like, no, 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 no. I need running water. (laughs) Yeah. -hmm. So I understand from that perspective that we don't see those challenges of like, hey, you have to marry this person. No, you can't have children or, you know, different Mm -hmm. things, different countries. So.
2: And I'll say just just because we're spoiled, I know a lot of stuff we talk about on our show is is sex related, has a lot to do with um, not just the pleasure and the exploration of it, but the rights as well. And although we are I feel privileged to be able to talk about that, um, it still means it's something we should talk about because the for a privileged country, we are on the forefront and a lot of countries look to us for progress.
0: I think not only that, but I would take a step further. So I think in our field uh, that is sexual physiology, we're often arguing for the importance of sex where we're trying to say, oh, you know, we should have funding to study the nature of pleasure. And I think we should be taking it further than that and say, we can use sexual stimulation to improve general health conditions. And if we limit ourselves and say, you know, I'm just going to study orgasm for orgasm's sake. Nothing wrong with that. You know, you should get pleasure where you can, but, um, (laughs) but orgasm also has some really unique uh, physiological features that help promote sleep. For example, you know, could we reduce the use of sleep aids in the U S if we had a way of systematically using orgasm in humans um, so that we weren't so chicken about having that conversation with our patients and saying, like, have you tried <laughs> you know, um, using this in a systematic way? You know, about an hour before you go to sleep, maybe thirty minutes. Uh, and we don't have those data in humans. It's crazy that we don't. So you know, those kind of things. It's uh, failing to discuss sex is not only lacking, you know, some discussion of pleasure and those uh, kinds of. Uh, Nice issues, nice to haves, uh, but it also cuts us off of access to potential healthcare. So, you know, is uh, being in a sexually aroused state meditative in some way? Could it have similar benefits uh, to general forms of meditation? Uh, Is just being sexually aroused enough to connect us to another person and reduce our feelings of loneliness, Uh, promote connection when we're in the middle of a pandemic, Uh, trying to figure out how to be in this space that feels sometimes very isolated. Uh, who's in our bubble you know what can we do with who's here
1: well well, i know they have a lot of science showing that meditation does help but you have orgasmic
0: meditation
1: explain how this helps
0: (laughs) so i had never heard of this either when it first came across my uh my desk from a colleague and orgasmic meditation um is a bit of a misname because they generally don't experience a physical climax from the practice and it's not meant to be meditative in the sense they're not like teaching breathing or trying to invoke a particular uh, state uh, that looks meditative. So this practice at its core involves 15 minutes of manual genital stimulation. That is uh, a partner, which can be any gender is stimulating the just outside and above the clitoris of someone who has a vulva for 15 minutes with the only goal to experience sensation. And that's the core of the practice. Now they built up a number of uh, things around that that we also use in our research uh, to make that experience something that's safe and predictable. And of course, when we take things into the laboratory with couples, this is essential. You know, we have to have a practice where we feel confident, our research participants feel safe, declining if they should feel the need, expressing, you know, I change this, do it faster, slower, pause, <laughs> you know, whatever they need. And so we saw orgasmic meditation in part as interesting practice, amazing for the laboratory. You know, like how we couldn't have designed, if we wanted to study uh, sex in the lab, the challenge is, you know, I can't, I have to have something that's systematic. I can't just open my lab door and say like, all right, kids, have fun. You know, <laughs> like we would have no idea what they were doing. You know, are they going to have oral sex or not? Are they going to do that for two minutes or 10 minutes? Um, and it's really hard to, say you know what is this interaction we want them to have and so orgasmic meditation also provided this really nice like established procedure for kind of walking through a partner genital stimulation that allows us to study that in a systematic way in the lab
2: so you're taking a scientific approach to it that we have a standard way that all couples will perform set action
0: yes so they they already had it laid out for us and we're like awesome <laughs> so follow the directions <laughs>
2: And what were the observed results off of that?
0: (laughs) Uh, So we've conducted a series of studies and we're most excited because we just had a paper accepted in PLOS One that is the first one on these data and peer review. And so that study, we had 125 couples, that's 250 people They came into the laboratory, and as a part of that study, um, engaged in orgasmic meditation in a separate private room, (laughs) so we were on the other side of a door uh, monitoring their physiology, and uh, we also asked them to report just before they engaged in the practice how they felt, so a number of different kind of emotional reports and how close they felt to that person, and then afterwards, again, you know, how did you feel? Uh, all the different emotions and how close they felt to that person. And this particular study, we really focused on closeness and uh, we had gotten uh, lucky maybe in the sense that when we designed the study, we said, you know, if you don't have a romantic partner, you can bring in whomever you want to do this practice with as long as you've done it with them once before so that you feel reasonably comfortable with them. And just by chance, uh, we found about half of our sample came with someone who was not their romantic partner. And we said, well, that's interesting. We should definitely see what the difference in effects might be, because, you know, there's this kind of stereotype that if you don't have an established romantic relationship with someone, you you can't connect with them. You know, you're not going to have an experience that is fulfilling in that way. That's reserved. That's only for romantic couples. And so we did find a main effect, unsurprisingly, that... Uh, in orgasmic meditation in general, across all the people, they experience more closeness after engaging in orgasmic meditation. <laughs> That's maybe not surprising. What was surprising is that the people who were not there with their romantic partner had a larger increase in experience of closeness with that person. And that we did not expect. <laughs> so, um, what that suggests is that you don't need to have an established romantic relationship to have this potential benefit from practicing orgasmic meditation. Now, whether or not that generalizes to other sex practices, we don't know, obviously orgasmic meditation is not the same thing as sex, Um, but we needed to start somewhere. So now balls in the court of another scientist, another lab to go and figure that next question out.
2: Let someone else go ahead and prove or disprove the theories on there, but that's fantastic. I'm glad there's there's more um, hardcore and uh, accountable science, being done because there are so many misnomers about there about sex attraction how relationships work we're told often that uh this is how things should work Mm -hmm. and whenever someone uses the word should i i stopped using the word should about 12 years ago because what i realized that what it meant was this is how i want things to be if i rule the world
0: (laughs) yes it's the same thing. My I think my I'm also a licensed psychologist and I see patients and I think they know now, like if they do should, I'm like, <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, it's like a should word. It's a, a red flag almost always.
2: So I gotta ask, what how did this research get funded? Did
0: you yeah, so we were funded by a nonprofit foundation in California that uh, was interested in seeing work done on it. So we, uh, it was structured as an investigator or uh, an investigator-initiated grant or an IIR. And so what that means is, my collaborator uh, Dr. Greg Siegel at University of Pittsburgh and I uh, said, "Hey guys, your thing looks kind of interesting." <laughs> you know, we wondered if you know, if we did some research on it, you know, we kind of want to look at this. Would you be willing to give us money if we did it in this way? And then importantly, uh, we own the data. So what that means is if we found negative effects, like closeness decreased, it makes people angry, we publish it regardless. So the funder has no say over what we publish. And that's an important part of scientific kind of integrity and independence. So uh, we are funded by that California nonprofit and then published as an investigator initiated research grant. Wow, that's interesting. Never thought of that.
2: I actually never heard uh, 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 of such a, a, a quantified, quantified, quantified. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Time to search, quantify.
2: what I get for eating taffy earlier today, that caramel. <laughs> um, a quantified scientific research on sex. Of course, we've all heard of Kinsey, and he, oh. he did a lot of progress in that, but there's still a lot more that needs to get done.
0: Absolutely. And so one of our uh, progenitors, I actually think is Masters and Johnson. So they're some of the early people to put sensors on bodies, uh, or, uh, you know, at least hands on to try and monitor physiology. And, uh, you know, it turns out since then, there are some like underground labs, even I didn't know about when I was in grad school that I have since found out were uh, kind of operating, or scientists were trying to learn about the physiology, but everyone was scared about their jobs, You know, they say, if you study this stuff, I mean, if you uh, watch the Masters of Sex series, you might have some idea of just how hard it is to do the work. And um, so to this day, you know, some of those scandals follow uh, us around. So I happen to train at the Kinsey Institute. And um, there has always been this conspiracy theory about Kinsey that now follows me around. You know, people are saying I'm involved in some weird Nazi child molestation. Seriously. (laughs) program. Um, I was floored when I saw that. I was like, you, what? <laughs> but it's all over the web, you know, there are people just smearing you, uh, due to this association with, uh, sexuality they hate. And so it becomes anything that touches that, you know, that they feel, uh, offends their, um, insistence that you have sex like they want you to, uh, makes you a target. And, uh, Kinsey is absolutely, uh, kind of firebrand for that. And so a lot of us that train there uh, will continue. You know, I'm many years, I graduated in 2007. The stuff still follows you. People still lie about like what happened there. Um, you know, one of the things I uh, like is I was an employee there as a research coordinator for a while in the physiology lab. And people say, oh, you know, that lab, uh, they tested children there. And I was like, I was literally in charge of that lab. I was there every day there were no children in the lab. <laughs> like I know for a fact that never happened, um, but it still follows me around, you know, and they make these wild claims. And the potential of course, is that they can become dangerous. So if you see like the, remember the pizza gate controversy, uh, there was this idea that there was a pizza shop that was secretly uh, sex trafficking kids. Uh, I think it was in the basement or something. And you think what a wild, crazy story And then some dude shows up with a weapon and starts firing, you know, and so he's arrested. You know, no one was hurt. Uh, But you have to be concerned about those things because, you know, someone that doesn't have their act together, uh, to be generous, uh, sees these conspiracies and could believe them, you know, and can uh, actually cause more threat than just these wild conspiracies that get floated around the Internet.
1: Yeah, it was interesting reading your article. There are five tips to survive a frivolous complaint against your psychologist license. And when I was reading it, I'm like, oh, my God, these guys are worse nut jobs than the other conspiracy (laughs) theorists that I've seen. But it's such a headache. I'm so sorry you went through that for so many
0: years. I I appreciate it, but it's also like it's a very strange experience so that like the licensure complaint was a group of certified sex addiction therapists who tried to you know they didn't like my research as far as I could tell and so they filed this false complaint with my licensure. It resulted in a three-year investigation and I was cleared of everything, but I couldn't practice during that time. Like I wasn't able to see patients. It was crazy. And there's no, they have no business doing that. You know, it's clearly frivolous. Um, and yet, you know, this thing just seems they'll try anything. You know, they contact my employers, they contact my grant agencies. Um, every interview, you can plan on having some comments, probably <laughs> literally. Oh, I look forward to it. Yeah, every interview I give, um, they say, "Do you know she molests children?" Do you know? like, yeah. and they don't get tired; they never get tired. That's what obsessive conspiracy theorists do.
2: After the last four years, I can believe people will believe anything, <laughs> um, and we don't. We don't <laughs> try, to, we don't try no. to get political no. on that, but um, we do live in a country where obviously privileged we have social media and i love social media but we're seeing the the bad part of it where it does spread bullshit pseudoscience (laughs) conspiracy theories like wildfire i mean one person makes it and it's all over the country in a moment
1: as legit according to the pillow guy
2: and as it keeps going on now like i said we're getting not just not just the the, the, nut job living in a, you know, off on a farm somewhere on his own. We're getting, it was actually a, what is it? Representative. The last one who talked about the the Jewish space laser.
0: Oh yeah. The
1: Georgia representative, brand new house of representative believing and telling everyone that this is legit. This Jewish space laser shot into California and started the fires.
0: That is exactly the anti-porn extremists are the same way. Like some of the stuff that comes out of their media, you're just like, you do not have all your marbles (laughs) to be generous. Uh, The challenge of course is uh, you wish that it would stay in their circles, you know, that it would remain that small. But I know five women now who study the effects of pornography, you know, we're either PhD granted or near it, um, who've had law enforcement present at their universities. We've had people actually show up where we work um, in one case, they were taking videos and posting them over a workplace. Um, I, I don't want to get too dark in this, but uh, about a, a year ago, a little more in October 2019, I was sexually assaulted outside of my office. And these people, are they don't stop. And they don't stop at things that are illegal or illegal. They don't care. Uh, it's anything to shut you up. And I think it's remarkable that it was five uh, PhD women who experienced this, you know, the... Guys don't seem to get the same kind of attention, and I think there's a reason for that. You know, I think these folks are targeting women, uh, and that a lot of the kind of language that they use and the attacks are meant to intimidate and threaten women. So, uh, like I said, I don't wanna, obviously there's a whole other issue around here and I have law enforcement uh, that are investigating as best they're able, uh, the threats and the things that have happened. And these women are all over the world, you know. so there's one in Canada, one in Germany, um, one in Ireland, and they just disseminate these threats everywhere and it's largely hate that's exported from the US. So it's really become a huge problem and I think some of it is criminal and I'm really concerned about you know it's it's already resulted in some criminal behavior and so how, how bad is it going to get? Where is it going to go? You know it's hard to say because they seem to have no end. So uh when I what I want to uh kind of follow this up is there's also great reason for hope because yeah. they've already done this, you know, they've made it. So what else do we have to lose at this point? You know, you've you've done everything you can to us. Um we're still here, we're still studying, and I've just published another paper. So good luck shutting us up. Um and at some point, uh, you know, you're either gonna get arrested or you're gonna get tired of things people are gonna see what you're doing. So uh, that's the hope is eventually, uh, I know that there's media interest in what's been happening and that there are some stories forthcoming. So I'm excited to see some of that stuff exposed and hopefully we'll be able to do our research in peace in the future.
2: Well, first I wanna say thank you for having the bravery to continue with this because it's, it's needed. And a little story I'll say, this ju- just happened. Um, of course, we get trolls on social media. All the time. And the argument started because we had reposted something about the incorrectness of a vulva as opposed to a penis in textbooks. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, a little story about the clit's not even there, it's not mentioned, and got someone arguing about and who all of a sudden started going into us being a feminist, this, that, and another, mm-hmm. and went through the entire thing, and I'm reading this, I'm going... He doesn't know he's talking to a man.
1: No, he doesn't. Because the majority of the time I'm on there. No, I blocked the sorry ass. I was just like, I was so pissed. Oh, you did block him. Yes, I blocked him. I did not want to continue with the stupid argument of it's wrong in the science book. We're just pointing it out. There is no other reason and functionality because it doesn't pee. It doesn't give birth. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just the scientific anatomy. And I'm just so sick and tired of people arguing science
0: is legit. Well, I think that's the interesting thing. So I remember being confused when a lot of this started because um, people would say, oh, you know, look at so-and-so's research, look at so-and-so's research. And I was like, but they're, but they're not a scientist. Like, what, what are they talking about? Like, I thought maybe I wasn't finding something um, and eventually came to understand that among conspiracy theorists that, that research is Google you know, that they Google things. (laughs) They say that's research. And of course, I don't consider that research. That's Googling. It's different. (laughs) You know, that peer-reviewed science uh, holds a different standard. And of course, these guys don't publish any peer-reviewed science. So um, not that peer review is the standard of everything. It can have its own uh, faults and challenges, certainly. But um, it's the, you know, the kind of taking of language you know, trying to present yourself as something you're not or having credentials you don't have um, to try and claim science as your own. Say, no, we are on the side of science. Well, then go get a degree, you know, go publish your peer review if you're so concerned about it. But if you don't, you know, don't tell me you're doing research. <laughs> so it's, I am very sympathetic to that um, idea of, you know, well, I just don't like the science. And so it seems like the next iteration is to say, well, in fact, I invented the science. like, <laughs> okay, I'm not sure uh, why you think, uh, you know, not having any backgrounds is, uh, you know, gives you enough uh, understanding of what you're reading, you know, to really process those things. Again, not that some people can't have a reasonable understanding, you know, without going all the way through school. I think there are certainly uh, ways you can develop that understanding and I would encourage it. Absolutely. You know, learn and learn about science. I read about things I don't understand all the time in science. That's part of the fun, you know, is how close can I get in physics? <laughs> you know, it's not, not my strength. Um, I had to learn for a vibrator study a while back, we put these piezoelectric accelerometers on commercial vibrators to try and characterize um, uh, their uh, vibratory characteristics. So this is frequency uh, displacement and acceleration. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, my high school physics, I was like, I have forgotten all of these things. You know, I was like, They're in here somewhere. Um, but it's trying to figure out like, again, how do I analyze these data? How do I and there's such cool projects, you know, when you dip in and say, I'm gonna do this as objectively as I possibly can, you know, how would you study a commercial vibrator? If you wanted to come at it from as objective a standpoint as you could, what's important in those to understand? Uh, What do you want to know? What could that mean for research or for uh, consumers if you knew more about what the characteristics of those vibrators were? So uh, I love the scientific enterprise in general. I'm probably way too uh, thinly spread (laughs) for the kinds of things that I do, but it's also a lot of fun.
2: Well, it's funny, uh, funny you mention that because we get to work with and talk with a lot of toy manufacturers.
0: Oh, and yeah.
2: We'll have some that are like more of the fluffy words of how nice mm-hmm. it feels or how powerful it is. And then just every so often, I will get the ele- the electrical or mechanical engineer on Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, my God. I can't. I was just- and they... Sp-
2: they we had started one conversation shop
1: and i'm just like i'm lost you just lost me on that you and john talks
2: so. well i understand that you know this has three motors and this one's here and this one's more powerful and i can see the angles then they start going into the the megahertz and the the, the frequencies RPMs. of the vibration and you want
0: your clitoris under any torque that's what you need to <laughs> yes yes it was really something you wanted
2: one of them, I remember they said it, it had like 7,000 RPMs at full blast. And my response was, I know that would blow my car engine. I have no idea what would it do, do to a Volvo. But <laughs> obviously, people are buying it. But it was so interesting to hear. And it's fun when you get someone on a subject like that because their eyes light up with passion. It doesn't matter whether you understand it or not. It's you're in. In this, in their little niche of science where and they engineer, know their yes. stuff.
0: Well, it's, there's something to seeing, I think people's passions in general too. Like I've taken this weird series, I was a little afar, but like I've taken all these weird classes. I took a whole series of cake decorating classes. I took a skateboard class. I took motorcycle racing, like Part of it is just seeing people in their passion you know it's like what are you uh, what do you really care about that you've gone so deep into and none of these people are doing this professionally they just love it you know and so it's uh i think maybe that's part of it is just it's their profession slash passion and seeing how far can i take this you know what can my knowledge do to improve sex tech or get uh, you know, to move us along in innovating sex tech um, so I'm always curious, like I've never talked to the guy who made the Womanizer, um, which is now permuted a thousand times in different devices. Uh, but whose idea was it to do clitoral suction? I was like, and why didn't we do it before? And why that way? You know, like, like that seemed like a real innovation after we had you know decades of just permutations of vibratory devices. I was like, this is truly different and interesting um you know as a, a sex technology development and now there are a couple of studies on that suction devices compared to vibrators and finding that it seems to uh, maintain gains in orgasmic capacity over time uh for women so super cool stuff um and I'm so glad they did it you know really looked into something that was unique and different uh a mechanism for kind of accessing pleasure
2: well it's funny because on the way I haven't gotten it yet um I heard about it last night uh, from a from a sex toy developer. They now have a men's stroker that involves uh, multiple air pressure. No air pressure.
1: Oh, air pressure. Oh, that's an air pressure. Oh, you didn't
2: air massaging through air pressure. So, first thing I thought thought is like you know you 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 get the uh, the what is it thing you fill your tire up with when you first (laughs) blow it and you get all that pressure pressure on you and I'm like okay it won't be that high but yeah I'll try it out. But one of the interesting things, um, being you are a scientist, um, none of well, I won't say none of. A lot of the things people say is, oh, well, there's no clinical study on it. Clinical studies are very expensive, aren't they?
0: Yes. So I get this a lot with like. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that are involved in Tantra and they say, oh, you should study us. I said, I would love to. Do you have any money? <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Not that I'm not interested. It's just doing the type of research we do where people actually have to come in. We have to manage biohazard. We have to do informed consent that involves oversight from health and human services that we have to you know, go through those regulatory boards. Um, it's keeping people safe, you know, making sure people are well-informed before they participate in our stuff. Um, it just requires a lot more structure uh, that becomes rapidly expensive. So uh, there's so many things that I wish I could study. And that was partly why we are so excited to have that um, grant for the orgasmic meditation study is what an opportunity, you know, to really look at a potential health application of something that was an intimate form of stimulation. I don't know when else I might have been able to do that kind of work. Cause you know, no one, I would say like, no one's going to fund that work, you know, are the s- sleep pill people going to help you see if orgasm could replace their pills. Of course not. You know, that's against all of their <laughs> marketing model. Um, every so, drug
2: company is going, no, 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 no Ambien, yeah. no melatonin. You can go to sleep on your own. Why would they want it?
0: Yeah. And so I think there are some market forces that are uh, not, conspiratorially at all this is just very straightforward you know why would you fund this Uh, so it's the groups that you know have some of this you know I've partnered with a couple of um, for-profit companies over time just to do very targeted studies Um, one was a vibrator you know where we did this and so these can be really good partnerships where Like in the vibrator study, I actually uh, used that opportunity while I was testing their device, you know, and kind of accomplishing what they needed uh, for their own uh, research and development. I also included the anal device that we were developing to measure orgasm contractions uh, so that we had a comparable device in men and women. That's uh, why we measure from the anus in part. And so the development that I was able to do around that device just as a function of doing this other work allowed us to then get funding Uh, to do a separate study from uh, the NORD, which is a national organization of rare diseases. So now, you know, that whenever COVID stops, (laughs) hopefully, you know, we will return to this. And now I'm using that anal device uh, in a study of men who have post-orgasmic illness syndrome. And so, you know, being able to partner with industry in a very targeted way can also promote science very directly in this case. You know, I mean, that was... That was how I tested that device was, you know, there was this very limited kind of for-profit um, that rolled into something that I was able to fund with uh, Dr. Tierney Lorenz from University of Nebraska um, to work on this other project. And so you really look for those opportunities. You know, There's not a lot of funding for sexuality. Uh, if you wanna look to the federal government, that's National Institutes of Health or National Science Foundation in the US, Good luck if you're studying anything related to sex that's not bad. You can study HIV, you can study disease, uh, you can study suicidality in LGBT youth, but if you want to study something positive, probably not federal, you don't, not here.
2: Now, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much, but you just mentioned something I had never heard of before, post-orgasm illness?
0: yeah. <laughs> So this is why it's funded through the National Organization of Rare Diseases. (laughs) So it's thought to be fairly rare. It's thought to primarily occur in men, although there's some question if it might affect women also. And it's uh, folks who every time they orgasm, whether with a partner or by themselves, they experience two to seven days of flu-like symptoms.
2: Oh, dear God. Yeah. the worst horrible thing I've ever heard of. I
0: thought giggling was bad. (laughs) So uh, Dr. Marcel Waldinger had been doing some research in this area and he recently passed away where they were developing this kind of allergen model. And uh, we think the allergen model is probably not getting exactly what the problem is uh, for these guys. So uh, that's what our study is proposing to do is to kind of test an alternative model of what might be affected in these guys who have post illness syndrome. Um, I would hope to have been done by with data collection by now, but covid so we learned something new today
2: <laughs> we're learning a lot of new stuff today
1: i know but that was like oh i did not know that and here i thought the comedy central calling her neil grassy tyson oh, of that. pussies was like something whoa that, that just whoa. sorry <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I get a lot of shiny so <laughs> uh,
2: very cool so we've talked about orgasmic meditation, we've talked about uh sir sir well the five tips for surviving a bit. Um I don't know, what else do you think people need to know about the science of sex because I got to say for all the people we've interviewed in the last 5 years, you're probably the, the 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 expert scientific on that as far as the health benefits of sex, the proven ones.
0: <laughs> um so I have a pet theory that I can wildly speculate about.
2: Oh, I'm, done <laughs> I'm here. Yeah,
0: yeah. There you go. We, we, we like these theories. <laughs> so
2: we, we brought we broadcast everything as we're teaching from our experiences. And if you really have questions, talk to your doctor. So we can say whatever the hell we want. We're not telling anyone to do anything.
0: Because yeah. we don't want to send you to this ER. <laughs> um, I'm thinking of so many case reports I've read right now. But <laughs> so <laughs> what I'm. Uh, really interested in overturning, this is like my uh, secret, not secret uh, mission, is you, if you've taken a human sex class in college, you probably learned about the sexual response cycle, and you probably learned Masters and Johnson's uh, sexual response model. And they basically propose that uh, the sexual response is comprised of an excitement phase, um, a plateau phase, an orgasm, and a resolution. And I think they're missing a phase. So some of the data that we have from our orgasm studies suggest that excitement, okay, basically on board with that. Uh, but I think what they're calling plateau, they were imagining as a state that persists until magic happens, blamo orgasm. And I think there's a distinct periorgasmic period um, that actually has a decrease in sympathetic nervous system tone and an increase um, in the alpha component of the brain response uh, from what we measure, which is electroencephalography, uh, which is consistent with like a letting go uh, kind of experience. So in other words, the sexual response might be get excited to a sufficient level, whatever that is, and that's a big question mark, And then you have to make a shift to this periorgasmic period that involves actually some decrease in sympathetic tone uh, and some ability to let go or release that would allow then the orgasmic experience to happen. And so as you may know, we still don't know really what triggers the orgasm. We know a fair amount about like what happens right up to it, And then what happens in that during that reflex, like once it's initiated, but that little magic point, whatever that is, um, that actually causes it to flip is a bit of a mystery. And so that's an area that we're really focused on in my laboratory. And I hope, you know, in say five years, I'll have a paper out that talks about what we think that periorgasmic period is, which could mean a revision, uh, to that really well-known model. So I would love to see if that's the truth.
1: That would make sense. Yeah. Because I'm I'm thinking, you know, because some people have those blockage, like they need permission to release, to
0: have the orgasm, like they're well, holding is, onto yeah. it. Yeah. So clinically, like we see this distinguished pretty well, that is some Um, this is more common in women, although it certainly also occurs in men where, uh, women tend to have problems with one or the other. They either say like, I have trouble getting going, you know, I don't have spontaneous desire, but once I'm going, you know, I have an orgasm, everything's fine. And then there are other women who say like, I get going just fine. And then I just like, hang, you know, I just can't get over the bump. And I don't know why, like I sit there and I'm like, turn the vibrator up and I do it more. And I really love my partner. Everything's good there. And I just can't experience it, and I don't know why. And so I think it's, it could be because these are very separable stages, you know, that that could explain this cl- clinical phenomena we often see, um, where people tend to struggle with kind of one phase or the other. Um, certainly some struggle with both, but there's also some clear distinction. And my suspicion is that might be why.
2: Really interesting. I mean, I, again, I know we're talking more from experience, but um, we've actually done Tantra for quite a while. And separate, okay. separating out again, I would love to have a study on this, but separating I
0: out. I know, I know. <laughs> I've heard so much tantra. I'm telling you, I will study. I'm very interested. It's just a funding issue. Sorry, go ahead. Of course. <laughs> oh no, no. We'll just put it out
1: there to the universe. It's like get the funding, get the funding.
2: <laughs> yeah, we can have a. You know, Bill Gates needs to donate some money to something.
1: But- <laughs> oh, Jeff Bezos. He's just let go of it Amazon, so why not? <laughs>
2: God, if I was a billionaire, the weird stuff that I would fund.
1: That's what I'm afraid of.
2: <laughs> but one of the things we learn is to separate, uh, at least for a penis owner, the ejaculation from the orgasm. That mm-hmm. you can have an orgasm. And, and really the big difference is, of course, ejaculation, semen, it's a, it's a lower body reaction. Uh, orgasm is what happens up in your mind. And I'm not saying in your thoughts. There are chemical releases. That occur with it which which can be I can't quote it but proven by science that you get those chemicals you can feel good uh, about you get the results after it but if you could separate those two Mm -hmm. it, it just it just really seems like then there's a hell of a lot more that we think this is how things work that are absolutely false and yeah
0: And that's part of what I'm interested in the health applications of sex is, you know, which of those really require climax or related to climax, which has this really specific um, characterizations that are distinct from sexual arousal or high sexual arousal states. So for example, like, if we think that um, the brain shares some features with mindfulness meditation during high sexual arousal states, you may be able to get health benefits just from being highly sexually aroused and not needing to have a climax. Wouldn't that be nice to know <laughs> You know, if you uh, have trouble kind of keeping your mind in a mindfulness meditation practice because you get distracted and all this other stuff's going on and... like, do I really want to do this? Uh, You might be a lot better at practicing your meditation, which I heard was a difficulty for someone in this call, Uh, (laughs) if if it were um, done in the context of high sexual arousal. You know, so something where it's prescribed, you can either do mindfulness meditation, or there's a brain state that seems to be induced that's similar during high sexual arousal states. That'd be pretty cool. But my suspicion is like for the sleep application, it's probably not enough to be sexually aroused. My guess is you need Climax, um, possibly because of the prolactin uh, shift that happens at that time. Uh, That that seems to be a somnolent that might be contributing to why people feel sleepy, specifically after Climax, not just sexual arousal. So absolutely, like the ability to separate those gives us power to also look at health applications of the different components of the sexual response.
2: I'm loving this. (laughs) <laughs> Although you're the one who wouldn't benefit, because no,
0: I
1: don't. I get I get an a- adrenaline high after I oh. climax. Oh, well,
0: <laughs> so I have a theory about this. <laughs> so, okay, okay, tell, well, tell us the about this. <laughs> like, So I said, you know, like after sex, uh, it seems to be sandwich or sleep. You know, like people either want to get up and eat and like do other stuff, or they're ready to conk out. Um, and I'm like, how does this happen? Because it's the same reflex. Like if it happens, you should one thing should be prominent. Uh, And maybe it is, maybe we're not asking the right questions, but uh, the other possibility is when you're getting really sexually aroused, ghrelin is suppressed, which is kind of a hunger hormone. And so one possibility is like, if you've ever had sex long enough that like you you forgot to have lunch, you know, (laughs) like it was so good. You're just kind of still going. And as soon as the climax happens, you're like, oh my God, I'm starving. That's probably why is all of a sudden ghrelin comes back online after the sexual arousal is reduced. And you're like, holy crap, I need food. And so I wonder if there may be something related to motivational state that's more broad than just food per se, that like when that ghrelin returns, um, that it could be for some people when they have climax that, okay, you know, did I have that suppressed uh, to where now that that feedback or that bounce back is somehow related to this motivational state that sends me jumping out of bed and wanting to run around doing stuff and other people fall asleep. Uh, So I have no idea. I'm just speculating wildly, but that's part of the fun.
2: But I'm so interested right now, (laughs) because we 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 experienced the hunger afterwards so much, we've coined the term PSM, post-sex munchie. And we will go out on dates, we actually have a date night, Mm
0: -hmm. where we
2: will order a bunch of food and intentionally not eat most of it, take it home so we can have sex, and then throw it right in the microwave and have a great meal right afterwards.
0: That's awesome. And do you find, sorry, this may be too personal, do you find
2: the food taste different that's no we never
0: paid attention i wouldn't to say it tastes different <laughs> i'd say
2: i get more pleasure out of it
0: that's true okay that's what i'm curious about so i'm also interested in exactly that issue like post-orgasm how does that change whether it's pleasure perception or even like basic sensory perception around taste issues that i've never seen studied i'm super curious about that
2: Ooh. you see and the other one that my mind went to was actually having a diet based around edging.
0: Mm. Basically
2: masturbation to the point, because I've, I've realized with the stuff we do in BDSM, um, mm-hmm. when I am in a heightened state of arousal for long periods of time, which may happen, but there's no orgasm, mm-hmm. I will go hours and I'm really not hungry.
0: The science is totally behind you on that because of the ghrelin suppression.
2: That's a whole nother issue on Weight Watchers we could have.
0: (laughs) Right? What if? Wouldn't that be crazy? This probably wouldn't work. But wouldn't it be crazy if it did? (laughs) If, like, the best way to lose weight suddenly becomes sexual arousal. Like, the people just (laughs) feel. TM. TM. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's
2: right
1: <laughs> Hey, we got scientist to back us up, why not? <laughs>
2: we could fun- I mean, I now I gotta win that powerball. I'm funding this research
0: <laughs> I love it, yeah, there's a reason to think that something like that could work <laughs>
2: hmm and 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 again okay my my background I have a degree in computer science and then I got a business degree, and now I teach uh i teach let's put it that way <laughs> but i have i still have a very analytical mind which now brings me to the reverse side of it of oh when God. i see really skinny people i'm like what are you doing in private now
0: <laughs> that i don't know yeah i haven't seen any like absolute weight hmm, i don't know any data that speak to that
2: no but i got you thinking
0: <laughs> yep <laughs> another project for her to get funded <laughs> Totally.
1: So Nicole, thank you for being on the show. How can anyone find you or find the research that you're doing?
0: Uh, the easiest way to find me is libroscenter.com. So that's L-I-B-E-R-O-S center, all one word, dot com. And I also have a ResearchGate profile, which if you're a scientist, that's where we go dump all our papers so you can find my peer-reviewed research and read all the crazy stuff we're working on, including that paper that just uh, is coming out in PLOS One.
2: Very cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming out. We we have learned.
0: So much.
2: So much (laughs) tonight and have so many.
0: I expect Wank Watchers next year. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> well thank you very-
0: thanks for the ideas <laughs> thanks for the time i appreciate it
2: well if you like this content and you want to find more of us um where can they find us? I'm, I'm laughing still. I, I, I,
1: I'm like trying to catch my breath because it, this was just awesome there. Yeah. Everything sex positive me except for Instagram. We had to change it due to their terms of service. So it's SPM the Lunas. So that's where you could find us and all our antics going on. And don't forget date night with the Lunas uh, every other Tuesday. So thank
2: you all for listening. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Nicole, for spending the night with us, and we will talk with you soon. Goodbye.
0: Bye. Bye.
1: Hey, John, I want to get a new toy.
2: Okay, so let's go to Fairvilla.
1: But I don't want to waste time trying to find out what goes with what.
2: Well, there's Fairville University, and their staff is very well-educated and helpful.
1: Okay, but how about if I just want to go to a party instead?
2: Then go to their website, because on their calendar, they list all their events.
1: But I don't want to spend a lot of money.
2: Have you heard of their loyalty program?
1: Oh, yeah. That thing on my keychain that makes everyone blush every time they see it.
2: That's the one. Let's go. Well, they have over five locations in Central Florida. Which one do you want to go to? Fair Fair Villa Villa. for for pleasure, pleasure, fun, fun, and and fantasy.
1: fantasy. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Sex Paws and Me. If you like our content, please like, subscribe, and review us. You can find us on social media platforms at sexpositiveme or on our website at sexpositiveme.com. You can also reach me on all social media platforms as Miss Angelique Luna.
2: And you can find me at John C. Luna. And if you liked content like this and want some more, please subscribe to our monthly newsletter. And thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.